This is the FCB Radio Network, home of the best personalities, and where real talk lives. Online at fcbradio.com. FCB. They freed us all from tyranny. Risked everything for liberty. And they thought so we would be America, land of the Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast, a journey through American history for kids. I'm your host, Amelia Hamilton. Here we are in the summer of 1779, and things are heating up in the American Revolution. Here are a few battles that happened then. Back at the end of 1778, 20 whaleboats from Norwalk, Connecticut, got past British warships and took 16 British people prisoners and killed several loyalists. And as the Revolutionary War kept going, British Major General Henry Clinton was getting tired of Americans interfering in the Long Island Sound. At the same time, British loyalists wanted to go on the attack a little more, so they decided to fight back at Norwalk. It was also attacked because it was a base for Patriot spies, a place where they made weapons and munitions, and a major place where they kept supplies. Those were all things that the British wanted to stop. So Major General Henry Clinton decided it was time to attack, and he ordered Major General William Tryon to go after the seaports, including Norwalk. Now, it's important to remember here that Major General William Tryon was well known for being mean, and you are about to hear one reason why. So on the evening of July 10th, 1779, 2,600 British and Hessian troops landed on the beach, and the next day at dawn, General Tryon, along with Brigadier General George Garth, got their troops ready. George Washington knew this attack was coming, so he had already sent 800 militia and Continental Army troops to help. But the British, they were just going through the town setting everything on fire. At one point, the Americans did have the British surrounded, but the British brought in a cannon and they won. At least that fight. But later in the day, when they got toward the town green, they found even more American resistance. And this time, the Americans had the advantage. They had better weapons, and they had better ground where they were fighting. So the battle turned into a stalemate, which means that nobody was winning. But the British knew that more help was coming for them, so they went back to their ships while the town just burned. And it is actually said that that Commander Tryon sat in a rocking chair on top of a hill just to watch it burn. This ended up being the largest Revolutionary War battle that was fought in Connecticut. And when George Washington told the Continental Congress about it, he said Norwalk was destroyed. But it's also important to remember that the Norwalk citizens' soldiers were outnumbered more than three to one, and they did not let the British Army defeat them, although the town was pretty much destroyed. By the end of the day, the British had set 130 homes, 40 shops, 10 barns, 5 ships, and 2 churches on fire. Only six houses in the whole town were spared, and guess what? They all belonged to Loyalists. They knew exactly which houses they wanted to save. Speaking of stalemates, 
A stalemate around New York was dragging on in the summer of 1779, so British General Sir Henry Clinton, who we talked about just in the last battle, wanted to find a way to get Washington's army out in the open and he would try to destroy it and end the war once and for all. So in May of 1779, he took 6,000 British troops 40 miles up the Hudson River to capture a river crossing. There were small American forts protecting that part of the river, but the British forces easily defeated them. But Washington is very smart, and he knew that Clinton was trying to trap him, so he didn't follow. Instead, he and his troops went to a nearby town and waited to see what Clinton would do next. Well, his next step was to take his forces back down the Hudson River and send them to the coast of Connecticut where they started raiding the American shoreline. And he left behind at Stony Point just a small group of 600 soldiers. But seeing that it wasn't very well protected, George Washington decided that he wanted to get that back. And he gave the job to General Anthony Wayne. You might remember him because in 1777, he and his soldiers were surprised by a British attack at night that led to a lot of soldiers being killed. So this was his chance to get back at them. Washington gave Wayne orders to take 1,200 men to Stony Point, that's twice as many as the British had. And they would go in the middle of the night with bayonets, which are like the swords that you stick on the end of a gun. The soldiers that went with him were chosen specifically because they were some of the best American soldiers there were. Washington also told Wayne to send the men in through three different points with, quote, fixed bayonets and muskets unloaded. That meant no bullets. So on the afternoon of July 15, 1779, Wayne's force was only a mile from Stony Point. All they had to do was wait for midnight and attack. Wayne would take one group of men across the southern part, another group would go across the northern part, and a third group was going to attack directly, hoping that the British soldiers would pay attention to them only and not even notice the other two groups. So shortly after midnight, they were ready to go. And when the British saw the movement in the darkness, they began to fire at the men surging toward them. A British musket ball hit General Wayne right in the head he fell to the ground wounded, but luckily it had only just kind of grazed him, not really hurt him too badly, but he didn't realize that at the time. So he said, march on boys, carry me into the fort. Should the wound be mortal, I will die at the head of the column. Now, remember how the Americans were trying to trick the British into paying attention to only one group? Well, Lieutenant Colonel Henry Johnson, the British general, fell for it and sent his men to fight them. The first man to make it inside was Lieutenant Colonel Francois de Fleury. And when he got inside, he pulled down the British flag and said, the fort's our own. After they fought a little bit longer, the British knew they had lost and they surrendered. They gave up. A few minutes later, Wayne was carried inside and the American troops cheered. Wayne wrote a quick letter to George Washington. The fort and the garrison with Colonel Johnston are ours. Our officers and men behaved like men who are determined to be free. In the end, there were 15 Americans killed and 83 wounded. The British had lost 20 killed, 74 wounded, but 472 were captured. Wayne later came to be known as Mad Anthony Wayne for how wild he was in battle. But those troops did behave like gentlemen. 
Anthony Wayne could have taken revenge for what had happened years earlier, but instead of killing the British, he mostly just took them captive. Washington visited a couple days later, on July 17th, and he realized that it was going to be impossible to keep that fort. The British Navy could get it back really easily. So he ordered that the fort simply be destroyed instead. They took the prisoners and the supplies and left. And two days later, the British did reclaim the location. But Washington understood that this was a success and that his group had been so brave. And now he knew that something like this could work. So a couple of years later, he tried it again in an evening bayonet charge outside of Yorktown, Virginia, and that would be the last big battle in the Revolutionary War. But we'll talk about that another day. In August of 1779, a 23-year-old major called Light Horse Harry Lee was supposed to make a daring raid on a fort held by the British at Paulus Hook, New Jersey. In fact, that area is now right downtown in Jersey City. So the whole battle was 300 Americans versus 40 Hessians and British officers. So it doesn't sound too difficult, but it was a big deal in 1779. The Patriots had been losing a lot of battles and they needed to win this one. And Paulus Hook was a swamp. During high tide, the fort was actually on an island, so this wasn't a very easy fort to try to take. Light Horse Harry Lee proposed attacking at midnight. He would be coming from a place called New Bridge, nearby what is now Paramus, and they had to walk all the way to Paulus Hook, which meant a round-trip march on a hot, rainy August night with a battle right in the middle. The war wasn't going well, and George Washington liked that idea, but he changed the plan a little bit. He liked the idea so much that he offered 300 more troops from Virginia to Lee's force. George Washington was not going to lose that battle. So, on the morning of August 18, 1779, Lee and his troops left Newbridge for the attack. At dusk, the British commander, meanwhile, his name was Van Buskirk, he was in Paulus Hook and decided that maybe they should go raid a nearby town. So he and his men left the fort marching north, which mean that the British and Lee's patriots passed each other walking through the night. So as Lee got his troops together when they finally arrived, he realized that two of those Virginians had become separated from the remaining troops. So his plan was not going to work and he would have to come up with a whole new plan right now. As the troops waded through the marshes and swam through the creeks, their gunpowder got soaking wet, which meant that they were not going to be able to fire any weapons. The British heard them making all that noise outside, but they assumed that it was Van Buskirk's group of troops, so they really didn't do anything. Lee attacked so fast that the British sentries couldn't even send a signal with an alert to let people know that the fort was under siege. And although the Hessians tried and kept up steady gunfire, Lee's forces captured the block with the officers and men who were left to watch the fort. But since the gunpowder was soaking wet, the entire attack had to be done with bayonets. Now when they didn't find Van Buskirk and his troops at the fort, and knowing that the sun was coming, Lee retreated without setting fire to the building, without capturing any supplies, and without even ruining their guns. The tired and wet troops and all their prisoners headed up what is now Newark Avenue to meet with the boats that were going to take them back. But the boats had left hours before, thinking that they weren't coming. 
These men had already marched 25 or 30 miles, wandered through the woods, gone through the marshes, climbed the rocky slopes, and then fought a battle with no sleep and no food. Now it was daylight in August, it was hot, they were in the middle of enemy territory, and their muskets have no powder. They didn't know what they were going to do. And suddenly, 50 of those lost Virginian troops appeared out of the woods with dry gunpowder. They were ready. And then a rescue party came for them, so they were able to get back safely. So it was kind of a mess, but it was a victory. The American troops only had two men killed and three wounded. Meanwhile, the British had 50 killed or wounded, and Lee took 158 prisoners on top of that. It really proved that American soldiers could win against the trained British and Hessian troops right near British headquarters in New York. It also showed that no British outpost was safe from capture. That battle was a huge deal for morale. It made the Patriots feel so much better about the way things were going, and it made the British feel worse. The Americans initially court-martialed Light Horse Harry Lee. That means he was maybe in trouble because of the way that he commanded the Virginians. But George Washington backed up this young commander and Lee was ultimately found innocent on all of the charges. In fact, he even received a gold medal for leading that battle, one of only nine that were presented in the entire Revolutionary War. But the British also court-martialed their local commander, Major Sutherland, because they were disgraced. It only took 30 minutes to capture that fort, and that 30 minutes made Light Horse Harry's reputation. His military abilities probably helped him win the governorship of Virginia later, and even a U.S. congressional seat. His son, Robert E. Lee, would also be a military leader, but that doesn't happen for a little while yet. At President Washington's funeral in 1799, Lee was allowed to speak, and he said, that George Washington was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Just the next month, in September of 1779, the Americans had a victory in English water. A man named John Paul Jones had been born in Scotland and came to America as a cabin boy living for a time in Virginia. When the American Revolution broke out in 1775, he went to Philadelphia and became a senior lieutenant in our new Navy. He became famous for actions against British ships in the Bahamas, in the Atlantic Ocean, and even in the English Channel. And then in August of 1779, he was in charge of a ship called the Bonhomme Richard and sailed around the British Isles. In sep on September 23rd, that boat began fighting with the Serapis and the Countess of Scarborough, two English boats were which, which were escorting a merchant fleet, ships with supplies and things like that to sell. In this initial fight, the Bonhomme Richard undertook incredible damage, and Richard Pearson, the captain of the Serapis, asked Jones if he was ready to surrender, and Jones replied with those famous words, I have not yet begun to fight. He was going to keep on fighting. He was not going to give up. So they fought for three more hours, and then it was the Serapis and the Countess of Scarborough that ended up surrendering. But the Bonhomme Richard really was quite damaged. So after the victory, the Americans took over those boats, 
put their own people on the Serapis, and the Bonhomme Richard sank the following day. Still, this was an incredible victory. While that naval battle was taking place in British water, the Siege of Savannah, which was also called the Second Battle of Savannah, was just getting started. If you remember, we left Savannah in the hands of the British in our last episode. In December of 1778, we tried to get it, but the British took over Savannah. So in June of 1779, just about six months later, there were about 5,000 or 7,000 men guarding Charleston. And General Benjamin Lincoln said that if the Navy would help, it would be possible to get Savannah back for America. It was time to call on our allies, the French. Admiral the Comte d'Estaing said that he would help with, na with the Navy. So on September 3rd, some French ships arrived in Charleston to let them know that d'Estaing was sailing for Georgia with 25 ships and 4,000 troops. Lincoln and the French agreed on a plan of attack on Savannah, and Lincoln left, that, left Charleston with more than 2,000 men on September 11th. Meanwhile, the British had about 7,500 soldiers and about 100 other loyalists willing to help in Georgia. General Augustine Prevost, who you've also heard about before, was in command of these troops from his base in Savannah, but when the French fleet began to arrive, he was completely unprepared. So Dusting began landing troops near the city on September 12th, and by September 16th, they were making their way in. He was so sure that he would win that he even asked Prevost if he wanted to surrender. Prevost said he had to think about it for one day, and, then he, and so they agreed to stop fighting for that day. And when the day was up, Prevost said no, he wanted to fight. Just a couple days later, on September 19th, there was a big battle at sea and the British left one of their boats in the water, blocking the French from getting in to help the Americans. And that would end up being a big problem. The French commander took cannons from his ships and began attacking the city from there. And the city, instead of the defenses, bore the brunt of that attack, which lasted from the 3rd until the 8th. One British person wrote, there was hardly a house that hadn't been shot through. And even with all that devastation, it still didn't work. So Dustang said that they would try a direct assault where they would just go in and fight. He wanted the fighting to end for a couple of reasons. The first, he was running out of supplies. And the second, his sailors were starting to get sick. And he knew that the illness would just spread on the ship and nobody would be well, would be well enough to fight. It's too bad because if he had been more patient, things probably would have turned out differently. His officers told him to wait, but Dustang launched the assault against the British on the morning of October 9th. Unfortunately, this time, Prevost was prepared. They only fought for about an hour before the Americans retreated. And on October 17th, Lincoln and Dustang had to give up. This was one of the bloodiest battles of the entire war. Prevost said that uh, the American and French together lost about a thousand people. The real numbers were more like about 250 killed, about 600 wounded, and about 125 taken prisoner, which was pretty bad. British casualties weren't nearly as bad at all. They had about 40 killed, about 65 wounded, and about 50 went missing. Sir Henry Clinton wrote, I think this is the greatest event that has happened in the whole war. 
So the British were awfully happy. In fact, when the news of this victory reached London, they shot off cannons to celebrate. So there we are. It's the autumn of 1779. We've won some battles, we've lost some battles, and there's really no telling who's going to win the war. Although it's not looking very good for the Americans at this point, we'll have to see what happens next. In the meantime, don't forget to visit growingpatriots.com for coloring pages, videos, and other things related to this episode and every episode. You can also find everything on our social media, which is at Growing Patriots on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Can't wait to see you next time. They freed us all from tyranny. Risked everything for liberty. And they fought so we would be America, land of the free. Distributed by FCB Radio Network.